We're beginning in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. I began auditing an RTS class this weekend in uh, Old Testament judges through Esther, meets up at Chapelgate Prez in uh, Maryland. It's the first time in 15 years that I've been in a, in a classroom as a teacher. I enjoyed it very much. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Begin by reading two verses, verses 8 and 9 in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You'll recall that in the, uh, the Roman Empire, there were two general regions, the uh, western part that spoke Latin and the eastern part that spoke uh, Greek. And as time went on, uh, the church in each part of the empire uh, developed its own unique character. The, uh, the eastern church fell in love with allegory, sort of an allegorical interpretation of the Bible. And uh, in, the, in the east, they also came to the point where they decided it was wrong to pray to statues, but it was okay to pray to paintings. Uh, what we call icons, and uh, the Western Church decided it was wrong to pray to paintings, but it was okay to pray to statues, so uh, go figure, all right? But anyhow, um, as, as time went on, the, the churches in the two regions drifted farther and farther apart until finally, in 1056, they sort of made it official, and they broke, and after that, you had the Western Church that spoke Latin, and you had the Eastern Church. Uh, today, we call those Orthodox churches. Some of them speak Greek, some of them speak Coptic, some speak Russian, Orthodox churches. About 500 years later, the Protestant Reformation came, and in 15, which began in 1517 formally, and the Western Church split into two groups, what we now call the Protestant Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And it's important to remember that Catholicism isn't any older than Protestantism. All right? uh, before, before the Reformation, the Catholic Church didn't exist as we have it today. You had the Western Church, and uh, the People who believe what Protestants did today were a part of the Western Church before that, and people who believe what Roman Catholics did today were part of it. And finally, they just decided they were going to go their separate ways, and, and we had the, the Reformation. Uh, this, of course, is a Protestant church, uh, and uh, that's why I'm talking about this right now, because uh, this is a uh, Protestant church. What do uh, Protestants traditionally believe? What makes us different from the, the Catholic Church and from the Orthodox Church? And would you please put the first slide up there on the five solas? Thank you very much. The reformers are very creative men, and they sort of came up with these uh, five pithy statements to summarize what it means to be a Protestant as opposed to a uh, Roman Catholic Christian. Uh, as Protestants, we believe in the five solas. Sola scriptura, meaning we get our beliefs from the Bible alone. Now, obviously, the Catholic Church uses Bibles. They just uh, believe in getting some of their beliefs from church tradition or or the Pope, or uh, other such sources. Sola fide, we are justified by faith alone, as opposed to by faith and works. Sola gratia, which is what we're focusing on today, uh, we are saved by grace alone, as opposed to by grace and merit. Solus Christus, Jesus is the only mediator between us and God, as opposed to having you know, other mediators in there, like Mary, and the Pope, and saints, and priests. There's just one mediator between us and God, and that's uh, Jesus. And finally, soli Deo Gloria. If the first four of the solos are all true, then God must get all of the credit rather than just some of the credit for our salvation. Uh, before we get rid of this, just remember the opposite of faith is what? 
Justification by faith, justification by works. The opposite of faith is works, all right? That's not the opposite of grace. What is the opposite of grace? Salvation by grace, merit, or desert. Desert, meaning something you deserve. I don't know why the word desert came to be attached to some sweet thing you eat at the end of a meal. Maybe, maybe the idea was that the meal was so horrible that somehow you felt you deserved a sweet treat at the, at the end of it. I don't know. Uh, but I, obviously we're not talking about uh, you know, chocolate when we use the word dessert here. We're talking about what you deserve, something you have a claim to, something you're entitled to, something you have a right to. The opposite of grace is not works. Uh, and if, if you're sort of in the habit of you know, saying we're not saved by grace, we're, I mean, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace, I, that's okay. Okay, I'm just encouraging you to, to try to use the terms correctly. The opposite of faith is works. The opposite of grace is merit. We are not justified by works. We are not saved by merit, but by grace alone. In the uh, early 1600s, a group of Protestants arose who disagreed with the third sola. They disagreed with sola gratia. They still accepted the other four, uh, but they decided that sola gratia was wrong. We call this group Arminians today, named after their leader, Jacobus Arminius. And uh, they, they disagreed with sola gratia very strongly, actually, and they sort of formalized uh, their attacks against sola gratia in what are today called uh, the uh, five points of Arminianism. Uh, can you go ahead and go to the next slide, please? This is a Calvinist church. Of course, we disagree with Arminianism. We do uh, believe very much in sola gratia. Sola gratia means our salvation is a gracious gift from God. That's sort of redundant. Is there any sort of gift that's not gracious? If you, if you deserve the gift, is it really a gift? No, it's not. It's something you've earned. But if it's a gift, of course, by definition, it has to be gracious. Just like uh, Paul's words in Romans 3.24, he says, uh, we've been justified freely by his grace. Uh, that's redundant. Uh, grace, by definition, is free, of course. Uh, the definition of grace was different before the fall into sin. Before we fell, grace was just God's unmerited favor, period. Because everything Adam and Eve received from God was still a gracious gift. They didn't deserve it. They didn't have any claim upon it. Uh, they didn't have a right to be created. They didn't have a right to anything God gave them. All right, but then once we fell into sin, the definition of grace changed. Now it's no longer God's, it's no longer just God's unmerited favor. It's now God's unmerited favor for sinners who deserve the opposite. Again, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, I gave candy to uh, two children before they went to a children's church. Uh, the point, of course, being, uh, who was I unfair to? No, I was not unfair to the rest of the children. You know, the only way I could be unfair to them is if those kids had some claim upon the candy. I des they deserved it. They had a right to it. Did any of those kids deserve it? No. They, they had no claim. They were not entitled to it. So which two children was I unfair to? The ones I gave the candy to. I was unfair to them. They, they had no right to it, no claim upon it. It was a free or gracious gift to them. And indeed, this is, uh, you know, one of the easiest ways you can tell that a child has, has actually come to understand grace. If you give something to some of the class and not the rest, if the ones who received it start complaining about how unfair you are, 
uh, you're being so unfair, we don't deserve this good thing you've given us, thank you for being so unfair, okay? And, the, and of course, the ones who haven't received it, you know, just rejoicing in the grace given to their fellow classmates. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and, and, of course, not charging you or accusing you with wrongdoing uh, because they're convinced of the very soul of their being that they deserve nothing good as sinners and, uh, and they're not entitled to anything. Uh, then, then you know that that group of children really gets it. They, they get grace. They get grace. Uh, I was unfair to two children, of course, this morning. Now, uh, the, the point of giving the candy to them, though, is, is that I didn't give it to the two because I liked them more. Uh, I actually don't even know the two I gave it to, all right? Uh, when, when some children are given something and the others aren't, what, what does everybody assume? That the children who got it, they did something to get it. That's right. I, I must like them more. Or there was something they did to score points with, with the, the adult. And that is not the case. I don't even know those kids, okay? So obviously I don't like them more. And they did not, in fact, do anything to get that candy. And that, of course, is the nature of God's grace. We do not do anything to receive it. God doesn't like us more than the people he does not give his grace to. Then, of course, that is really the issue, uh, dividing Protestants. Uh, Is our salvation by grace and merit, or is our salvation by grace alone? Now, God's grace is an amazing thing. I'm glad that we got to sing some songs about it this morning. And one may reasonably ask why any person would reject this doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And the the simple answer, of course, is that it is our our natural instinct to assume that if some people are given something good and not others, that they must have done something to deserve it, or or, uh, the person who gave it to them must like them more. Every Christian on this planet, regardless of whether they're a Calvinist or Arminian or or just don't care about the difference between the two, we we all share certain common experiences. Every, Every Christian... Uh, at some point in the past, made a decision to repent of his or her sins and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. All right? Uh, every believer has that in common. So now, now here we are, believers, and regardless of how long we've been a Christian, we turn around and we see other people on this planet who've had the same chance to hear the gospel, and yet they haven't repented and believed. And so we start wondering why. Okay, why am I here now as a believer in Christ, why has God been so gracious to me? And he hasn't been gracious to that person, at least not yet. All right? And of course, some people he's never gracious to, and, and uh, they end up eternally condemned. Well, why have I been given this gift? Why have my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ been given this gift? God doesn't give it to everybody. Why not? Is it because I'm special? Because I'm different? Because I'm better? Did God like me more? Was I a better person than the people he doesn't give this gift to? Was there something about me that made me stand out, that made him decide to save me and not my college roommate? If there is something different about me, something special, then my salvation is not by grace alone. Suddenly there is some merit, some desert reintroduced into my salvation. Now I can say I I deserved it. I had a claim upon it. There was something special about me. And and that is that is really what we're doing here. We are we're trying to look at the situation around us. Some people 
who've become believers, some who haven't, some who've received God's grace, some who haven't, and explain why it is that some get this gift and some don't. Is it because we're special? Or is there some other reason? Uh, Arminians believe that there is something different about us, and that is why God saves us. Calvinists believe there is not something different about us. We're the same as any other sinner on earth. Why God chose us, we don't know, but it is not because we are better than everybody else. So I would like to uh, spend a few minutes, if you please, uh, arguing from the Bible for this doctrine, for the doctrine of sola scriptura, that we are saved by grace alone. Now, uh, our verse this morning, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8, says, by grace you have been saved. And you say, well, that, that ought to be enough. Everyone should just sign up for sola gratia. And I wish it were. But the, the truth is, is that the majority of people on this planet who name the name of Christ do not believe in salvation by grace alone. They believe in salvation by grace and merit, a mix of the two. Uh, I, I've never met a Christian who doesn't believe in grace at all, okay? But I've met many who don't believe in grace only. I believe that there is some sort of human merit involved in salvation. So three arguments I would like to present in defense of sola gratia. First, that all sinners apart from Christ are dead in their sin. Second, that God chooses us first, and then we choose him. And third and finally, God preserves us, and that is what enables us to persevere in faith and repentance. So let's talk about the first of those, that we, apart from Christ, are dead in sin. And to discuss that, we actually can stay in the same chapter, Ephesians. Just please look back with me at the very beginning of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, a description of what uh, all of us were like before we became Christians. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And because of that, it is by grace you have been saved. The Calvinist believes that uh, a sinner before he, he comes to Christ is dead in his sin. The, the Arminian, again, the person who, who does believe in justification by faith alone, but not in salvation by grace alone, says that we're not dead in sin, we're, we're drowning in sin. Okay, and, th- and there's a huge difference. A drowning person isn't dead. Okay, so uh, a drowning person, you throw a life raft or a f- floaty guy, we call him in my house. You throw him a floaty guy, all right? And the, the drowning person is, is able to what? Grab onto it, okay? Uh, but if you're dead, can you grab onto anything? You know, obviously not. Uh, the, the gospel is not like a, a life preserver that gets thrown out to you and you sort of grab onto it. Okay, you're, you're dead at the bottom of the ocean. Jesus dives down, gets you. He drags your body up onto the shore, and then he breathes life into you. And after you're brought back from the dead, you give him a hug. You grab onto him and you say, I, I've, I've decided I'm going to love you because you just raised me from the dead. And, and that, is, that is exactly what God does. Uh, we were dead in our sins and he raised us up with Christ so that we could then believe in him. Uh, along these same lines, please turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. A, uh, a passage in which Jesus discusses this 
process of being brought to life, even though we were spiritually dead. Jesus calls it being born again. Uh, theologians call it regeneration, whatever you call it. The point is, is that uh, I was once dead spiritually, and the Holy Spirit made me alive so that I could repent and believe in Jesus. We're looking at John 3, starting at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Meaning, unless the Holy Spirit brings you to life spiritually, you can't become a Christian. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Can I please have the next slide up? What I'm saying is this. What has to come right before you actually first repent and believe in Jesus? What has to happen first? Regeneration. You have to be born again. That is the logical order. Now, I realize that in our personal experience, it essentially happens simultaneously. But there is, there is a logical priority here. Dead people can't believe anything. And that is what I was before the Holy Spirit made me born again. I was dead. He made me alive so that I could then believe. We do not believe so we could be born again. The Holy Spirit makes us born again so we can believe. And if that is true, can I take any of the credit for my salvation? No. I mean, what, what percentage of being raised from the dead can Lazarus take credit for? You know, I, well, Jesus did most of it, but I did my part too. You know, I, I grabbed onto the life raft and asked him to help me out. Jesus gets all of the credit for raising Lazarus from the dead. And God gets all the credit for raising us from the dead. Our salvation is not just by grace. It is by grace alone. That is the first argument. We were dead in our sin until Christ made us alive. Second argument, God chooses us before we choose him. Uh, let's turn back to Ephesians, please. Back to Ephesians chapter 1 this time. We're looking at this idea of predestination. The word predestination is a broad term. It, it can refer to anything that God sort of ordains ahead of time. The word election, however, specifically refers to God choosing some for salvation. And that is what we're interested in here. God actually, before the creation of the world, chose whom he would save. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And you skip down to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So uh, the, the word is there. It's in the Bible. Uh, it's amazing how many people I, I meet who are hostile to Calvinism who, who think that Calvin invented the word predestination. They, they really think that. And, 
and when I show them in the Bible that it's actually a biblical word, word they're really flummoxed and, and, and take offense. And then, after a while, if they're still going to go on rejecting the idea of predestination, they have to do something with it because the word is in the Bible. Calvin did not think it up. So they, they sort of invent an alternate view of predestination. Here's what they say. They say, well, maybe God chose to save you, but what he did is he sort of has this crystal ball. And he looked into the future before he made anything, and he saw that you were going to believe. And so because he saw that you were going to believe, he decided to choose to save you. Now, aside from the fact that the future doesn't actually exist, and aside from the fact that uh, this view implies that your decision to believe in Christ has some sort of independent, eternal existence apart from God, leaving those problems aside, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that God looks into the future and sees what you're going to do and chooses you because you're better than everyone else. The Bible says that God chooses us for a different reason. Let's turn back to uh, Romans chapter 9, please. Romans chapter 9. God does not have a crystal ball. He does not look into the future to see what you're going to do. And when he discovers that you're going to choose him, decides to choose you. Now, that is not how it works. We're looking at Romans 9, starting at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham, because... They are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, here's the key verse, verse 11 in Romans 9, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, meaning not because of anything Jacob or Esau had done, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What Paul is saying here is that God chose to love Jacob and he chose to hate Esau, but not because of anything they would do, not because of their works, but for his own purposes. Now, it's not like God rolls dice. You know, I rolled, hey, I guess I'm going to love Esau and hate Jacob. That's not what he does. His choices aren't random. But the Bible never tells us why he does choose whom he chooses. All, all it does is tell us why he doesn't. You know, according to this passage, God does not choose people because they're better than the people he doesn't choose. He doesn't choose them because they're more godly, because they're going to believe in Jesus, because he likes them more. The people he chooses are every bit as much sinners and losers, deserving of the wrath of God, as the people he doesn't choose. And if he chose me for his own mysterious purposes and not because there was anything in me that he liked, then my salvation must be by grace alone. The instant I say there was something about me that made him choose me, I've reintroduced merit or desert into human salvation. God chose me because I'm special. That is not the way God chooses people. I don't know why he chose me, but I do know why he didn't. I don't deserve it. My salvation is by grace alone. Third, God preserves us, and that is what makes us persevere in faith. If you would please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. 
I'm sorry, Hebrews 3. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, if, if you've been a Christian for a while, you unfortunately have had the experience of seeing some fellow brother or sister in Christ turn away from Christ, leave the church, reject him. Uh, it's very sad. Unfortunately, I've seen it all too often. And we, we wonder, why did this person not persevere? Now, of course, we certainly pray for that person to repent, and we hope that they do. And in many cases, God does reclaim that person. But unfortunately, some people turn away and never turn back. They, they never repent. And so why do some people keep believing and obeying and repenting till the moment they die and others stop? Certainly we need to persevere. Look with me at Hebrews 3, starting at verse 12. The author says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold out our original confidence firm to the end. So how how can you tell that someone's a believer? They do what? They persevere. Year after year, decade after decade, living that constant life of repentance and new faith in God. So we have to persevere. The question is, is what makes us persevere? Many Christians believe that God sort of gives you some grace up front, and then you take over. So, yes, God graciously gets me into the kingdom, gets me into the church, fine, but from that point on, I take over. And I have to sort of keep myself in the kingdom. And if I don't, then I lose my salvation. So, yes, there's some grace, but there's also some human effort and merit all sort of mixed together. Uh, the Roman Catholic doctrine of grace is similar to this. Uh, what, what Catholicism teaches about grace is that God graciously changes you into a person who is able to earn his salvation. Uh, so, I mean, Roman Catholics believe in grace, but that's the kind of grace that's taught in, in Catholicism, at least formal Roman Catholic theology. Uh, so Roman Catholics certainly want grace. They, they want to be graciously remade into someone who doesn't need grace. Okay, but, but the, the, I've, I've met plenty of Protestants who believe the same thing. You know, I want as little grace as possible, Lord. Please, yes, change me into someone who doesn't need it anymore. You know, change me into someone who's able to persevere on his own. I don't need your help. That's the kind of person I want to be. Would you please give me that much grace? Would you please give me that kind of grace? God's not interested. He could do that, but he doesn't. At no point in this life is he going to change you into someone who doesn't need grace anymore. Why do we persevere? Why are we still believers today after all these years? Please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I realize that some people consider this particular theological issue, the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, you know, a secondary topic, and it's not really that important, and all that matters is that we trust in Jesus. May I respectfully disagree? Uh, what's at stake here is nothing less than the gospel. Is the good news that we're saved by grace alone, or is the good news that God gives you some grace and then you have to finish the job? What's at stake here is the very definition of the gospel. I do not think this is a secondary issue. Are we saved by grace alone or not? Let's look at 2 Samuel, please. Chapter 11, first of all. In chapter 11, you'll see that King David sees Bathsheba, 
Verse four, he sends messengers and takes her. She comes to him. He lays with her, and of course, she ends up pregnant. Uh, David does not uh, own up to his sin. Instead, he comes up with a plan to murder her husband, uh, which he proceeds to put into place. Uh, Her husband, Uriah, is killed in battle, and then David takes her home and marries her to cover up the fact that he slept with her uh, previously. All right, so that's the end of chapter 11, and David goes on about a year. Now let's pick up in chapter 12. David has not repented. We, we might consider him to have very much fallen away, at least from all outward appearances here. And the Lord sent Nathan, he's a prophet, to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man! Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and you shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And here's the key line, of course, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Does David persevere in faith and repentance? He does persevere. He finally repents. But he only repents because, why? Because God sends a prophet to go get him to repent. God chases after him, and God makes him repent. This is, this is the difference between Christians and non-Christians on a daily, monthly, yearly basis. If, if you're not a Christian and, and you fall into sin, God says, fine, go. But boy, you know what it's like as a believer. You know, you sin, God gives you no peace. He chases after you. He will find you. Okay, whatever it takes. If you want to be Jonah and run to the other side of the world, it doesn't matter. He will chase after you if you really are one of his children, and he will get you to repent. God preserves us. He shepherds us. He makes sure that we repent. And that is why we persevere. If Jesus were not a faithful shepherd to me, if he were not constantly bringing me back, I would have bailed on the Christian faith a long time ago. And if it is entirely because of Jesus' shepherding work that I am persevering today, then he gets all the credit for my salvation. My salvation is by grace alone. Please put the next slide up for me. 
The three arguments I gave you today represent three of the five points of Calvinism. After the Arminians rejected sola gratia, the reformers in the Lutheran tradition who did believe in salvation by grace alone came up with these uh, five counter arguments. They said, no, man is dead in his sin and God has to make us alive before we believe and so he gets all the credit for our salvation. Uh, God's election is not based on any conditions in us. He doesn't look ahead in his crystal ball and see that we're gonna believe. He has his own reasons, but they're not because we're special or different or better. And so because his election is unconditional, he gets all the credit for our salvation. Uh, Jesus does not die for every single human being, but for those whom God appointed for salvation. And, and therefore, Jesus' death actually secures our salvation. It doesn't just make your salvation possible. If Jesus actually saved you when he died, if he actually redeemed you when he died, not when you believed, then obviously... Our salvation is by grace alone because he's the one who earned it for us. Uh, irresistible grace, that has to do with uh, the Holy Spirit uh, chasing after you and making you born again. If the Holy Spirit is determined to hunt you down and make you believe, he will, he will find you. And he will bring you from death to life and change your heart and mind so that you freely embrace Christ as he has offered in the gospel. And finally, perseverance of the saints. If it's Jesus constantly preserving me and shepherding me that makes me per persevere, then again, God gets all the credit for my salvation. So go back a couple to the uh, five solas, please. Okay. The five points of Calvinism are all about which one? What, what, okay. The, the, in one word, what's this whole sermon about? Grace. Okay, it's all about grace. And why, why was I giving you those uh, three of those points of Calvinism? To defend what? Sola gratia. Uh, you know, I know so many Christians who know the five points of Calvinism, and they can even defend them from the Bible, but then I look at them and ask, why do they matter? And they just sort of stare at me blankly. Uh, uh, I don't know, because my church says they matter, you know? Yeah, you know, listen, you know, if you know the five points, I love you, that's not enough. I need you to make this connection in your mind. Uh, next slide, please. Sola gratia. What are the five points of Calvinism all about? Yeah, they're about the third sola, sola gratia. Why were the five points of Calvinism written down in the first place? To defend the third sola. That is what they are all about. Why do the five points of Calvinism matter? To defend sola gratia. If, if the five points of Calvinism aren't all true, we're not saved by grace alone. But if they are all true... Our salvation is fully and entirely a gift from God. We do not get any of the credit for it. That is why we're worshiping God this morning, because it is all his work beginning to end. Whether you're an Arminian or Calvinist, the fact is, is that you trust in Jesus and God is forgiven. You praise God, all right? But I want you to correctly think about what God has done in your life. I want you to correctly interpret it, all right? Uh, if, if you become fully convinced that it is all of grace alone, then you will treat God accordingly. You will treat him as deserving all the credit, and that is what I desire for him. I want him to get all of our praise and honor for the work of salvation he has done in us. Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, you chose us to be holy and blameless in your sight. We thank you that you chose us even though we did not deserve it, even though we had no claim upon that choice. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, 
not just for people in general, but specifically for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you had us in mind when you died on the cross, and that when you died, you did, in fact, redeem us in full. We thank you, Father, for sending the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that in the fullness of time, you quickened our hearts, enlightened our minds, made us born again, that we might repent and believe the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are constantly shepherding us, protecting us, bringing us back to you, keeping us in the faith. We thank you that you who have begun a good work in us will surely complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. We give you all the credit for this grace you have given us. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.